Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today we have a special guest that I'm really excited about, Dr. Darius Daniels. Welcome, Dr. Daniels. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's really great to be a part of this and just just to even see a witness kind of what God's doing with this with this with this ministry, really. I think it's relevant. I think it's missional. I think it's needed. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be a part. Thank you. So for those who don't know um, who you are, could you um, introduce yourself? Yeah. So Cliff Note version is I'm born and raised in Mississippi and um, wife is from there. We met college sweethearts. Uh, all our family still in Mississippi with the exception of my sister in 2001 came to Jersey for seminary at Princeton. Um, finished there in 2004. Um, while I was there, I had this just amazing experience with this uh, incredible professor named Daryl Guder. He kind of introduced me to something called missional theology, missional ecclesiology. Really my first introduction in a real sense to kingdom language and things of that nature. So basically my experience with him is what kind of burdened my heart uh, to be a church planter. I was already serving in a church in a number of capacities, but from there we planted, graduated in 2004, planted a church in August 2005 called Kingdom Church. And um, yeah, so we just made 10 years old, and uh, not too long ago, June of 2015, I finished uh, doctoral work at Fuller Seminary. And um yeah, I think that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Like I said before, Mary, uh, to my college sweetheart, and uh, we've got two incredible boys, Seth, who's my oldest, uh, and Gabriel, who's my youngest. Awesome. Congratulations on your 10-year anniversary. Yeah, thank you. It's been a been long days, fast years. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I might start using that. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about today apologetics and the black church. Um, when I talk to so many and um, people in uh, just in general, not even just black churches, uh, white churches too, they're um, when I say apologetics, they're like, "What are we saying? I'm sorry for." Um, (laughs) (laughs) I get that all the time. You recently did a series called uh, Frequently Avoided Questions, um, and it was an apologetic series. And I know in the I think it was the God is Good sermon, which is a very good uh, sermon. I listened to it twice. Um, You you uh, you actually defined apologetics because you said you had been using it in the previous sermon and um, you wanted to make sure people understood um what it meant. So what was the motivation behind the series frequently avoided questions? Well, my motivation was twofold, really. One, uh, it was a pastoral motivation. Uh, And what I mean by that is pastorally, I began to have over a series of years, I just noticed exchanges that 
I would be having with members and conversations that I would have and statements that they would make that revealed to me that they were wrestling um, with, at sometimes, best case, incomplete, and uh, worst case, incorrect understandings of some very fundamental Christian truths, you know. So someone may be uh, really, an example would be of a member who's really struggling with and wrestling with commitment to God and continuing in the faith because of some personal tragedy, like whether it's an unexpected diagnosis with a terminal disease or the loss of a loved one and trying to wrap their head around a good God, um, doing something like this, allowing something like this. And so some of the statements that uh, they would make kind of revealed to me that they really were were in need of, I think, just some perspective on some basic things that I think that we can assume people understand and know. So that was kind of my pastoral motivation. It was like, yo, we really need to tackle some of these issues. And then I had a personal motivation just as a Christian who is concerned about Christianity and culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really wanted to make sure that we were kind of equipping that I was doing my best to equip the people that I serve with the ability to at least be able to articulate what you believe and why you believe it Mm -hmm. um, to a culture that's becoming increasingly suspicious of it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, I think, the two primary motivators for me for me doing this series. It wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't just trying to infiltrate their head with head knowledge. I got really, really kind of mixed feelings about stuff like that. Uh, But it was really motivated by my heart, not just my head. Amen. I think that's important um, because, you know, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And um, so... Thank you for uh, being one of those pastors that equip uh, their congregants. Um, that's to be applauded. Um, why do you think it's important for for black pastors to equip their churches in the area of apologetics? Uh, well, obviously, I think you and you and I both. I mean, we've talked about this. You and I both agree that uh, we, it's important, probably, for a number of reasons for every church, right? No matter what the ethnic makeup, to do this. But I think it's uniquely important for those of us who serve the urban context, particularly if you're serving black and brown people in America, because, right, they, uh, because of systemic sin and a number of other issues, uh, their life is disproportionately negatively impacted. Mm-hmm. And so there's some social realities that, that black and brown people deal with that are just, that are just unique. Uh, just point blank, period. So the margin of error is much smaller for them in terms of the way that they manage their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so when when you're wrestling with certain disadvantages, when you have to overcome certain obstacles, um, I was just at a, a, a forum. It was an invite-only forum, so I can't 
uh, disclose where it was and things of that nature. But it was a bunch of influences in the room, and the uh, discussion was on what, race and race in America and high-profile influential Christian leaders. And I had to do this talk on um, the African-American church in a majority culture. And one of the things that I, I think is often, I spoke a little bit about this, that I think is often not seen is that when you talk about being a minority, that's not just a disproportionate amount of people. That's like, that's a disproportionate amount of power. Mm-hmm. Meaning that people who are making decisions that impact the lives of minority people who very often don't look like them. So for me, that means that nine times out of ten, the doctor who's diagnosing me, the doctor who's deciding what tests to order on me, the admissions officers who decide whether or not I get into school, the bankers who decide whether or not I get a loan, uh, the teachers that decide what grades I get, all of those, for the most part, those people aren't going to look like me. So my point is, when that's your social reality, you really don't have a lot of margin of error when it comes to your life. And mm-hmm. so apologetics is important because if your doctrine is off, your life is going to follow, mm-hmm. point blank. Um, you can't live a good life with bad doctrine. Um, and so like Jesus talks about that in Matthew 7 when he talks about, when he uses a parable describing um, someone who builds a house and what they build on and how, how they build their house determines uh, how it, stands or whether or not it will stand with certain natural disasters and things of that nature. So, you know, the quality of your life is largely going to depend on how and what you build it with. And it's so important that people are building with truth, mm-hmm. right? Because the the rock that Jesus talks about is him. It's in Matthew 7, it's truth. And, and sand is not truth. And so it changes, it shifts. And so, Man, when the wind is beating against the, the the life of your house in an extraordinary way, you've got to make sure that you've built it on a rock and on on truth. And uh, so, uh, for me, that's one of the reasons I think it's important. It's important for everybody, but uniquely important, specifically important for for those who serve the urban context. Amen. Because if our orthodoxy is off, then our orthopraxy will be off too. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you think that traditional, do you think black pastors in general have challenged their churches to critically think about what they believe and why they believe it? You know, I think that's a very good question. Um, I do. <laughs> I think it's a very good question. And it's kind of, I want to make sure I answer it, but I'm particularly intrigued by that question. And I love it because, um, uh, <laughs> I think one of the key words there, right, is traditional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what that means in terms of just uh, the hi- historic African-American leadership and things of that nature. So I'm going to say I'm not sure how sure, uh, how good a job any church is doing at it. I, I don't know. I can't speak for every context. Uh, this is what I think sometimes, though, right? This is just my soapbox. I think sometimes we can, and I'm talking specifically about African-American leaders here, I think we can start painting the urban church with a broad brush that's not accurate. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Like particularly when we get exposed to a degree and a dimension of theological learning, mm-hmm. um, sometimes we can unintentionally become like anointed elitist. Mm-hmm. We can become subconsciously condescending, and like so. For an example, I was talking to this guy I know who's, um, uh, and I'm not, I'm not labeling him anyway. But he's a friend of mine. I love him to death. But he's like he's 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 just like uber reformed and. You know, he, um, we have a conversation, he's saying, and he's, he just communicates, like, yo, I just really, really appreciate your preaching. You've just got this really Christocentric hermeneutic. And he was like, I was telling some of the cats that I'm in grad school with, because he's in Bible college. I was telling him, especially the black pastors, like, yo, y'all, y'all got to get this Christocentric hermeneutic, et cetera. And, and I told him, I said, well, you know, I think, I think you're making some assumptions that aren't true because I said, at least in, in my experience, I grew up Baptist. <laughs> I said, in my experience, if they had nothing else, they had a Christocentric hermeneutic. Like, yo, they always ended Jesus on the cross. <laughs> and the cross, right? <laughs> I mean, they can be talking about whatever, but it's ended like with the gospel and with, and with Jesus. So, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> that, that's, that's really complex. But yeah, so I would say, um, at least in my in my experience, right? In mm-hmm. my experience, growing up in a I think predominantly African American church, um, to my knowledge, I, I, I wasn't. I just I wasn't exposed to to much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could, I think that's the best way I can frame it. I I was not. That was not my experience. And I think sometimes there is. I think sometimes there's rationale for it that's not necessarily evil, particularly when you talk about 60s and 70s and Jim Crow and injustice. And, and you know, I think when people can't vote and when your kids are being beat up for the, because of the color of their skin, you know, I don't know how high explaining the Trinity is. I don't know how high it's going to be on your pro- list of priorities. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes your social reality gives you the luxury of discussing certain things where, you're in, where when you're in different contexts, the, um, the immediacy of, like, your social reality requires that you kind of emphasize other areas of Scripture in a way that other people don't. It's, it's really complex. Um, in my experience... Yeah, I was probably underserved in that area. And I, I know, know um, how bad that is. Yeah. T.D. Jake said that same thing as far as the luxury when he was um, with in the elephant room um, that um, James McDonald um, facilitated a couple years back with him. And um, I think it was him, Stephen Furtick and um, Mark Driscoll. And mm-hmm. they asked him kind of a similar question. And he was like, you know, understanding the African-American context, we didn't have the luxury um basically the same exact words you said um, Mm -hmm. to actually, you know, have these conversations. We were just trying to make it. (laughs) Yeah. And And that's one of the things I think I, when I, the the time that I spent on you guys' site, when you extended this invitation, I was just kind of researching. That's one of the things initially that I felt like I just kind of appreciate about what you guys are trying to do. uh, Because I think it's, um, how can I do? You are 
initiating conversations that need to be had now, mm-hmm. right, without being insulting, condescending, and elitist when it comes to previous generations of leadership who may not have done it mm-hmm. the way that we're trying to do it now. I feel like there's, I, I feel like that's, it's kind of, un, kind of unique. Like mm-hmm. in my experience with our generation, I think we can be highly critical mm-hmm. sometimes to a fault and unwilling to extend the type of grace to previous generations of leadership that all of us currently need now, mm-hmm. especially, especially if you're a young leader. Yeah. And I, um, I think that cause I went through that phase where I was, I grew up as a PK, my father's a pastor and I went to college and, um, I went to college at a state university and my professor hit me with all of this kinds of stuff. She was like, I'm going to change everything you think about Jesus. And, mm-hmm. um, our textbook was Bart Ehrman. So I'm sure you're familiar with who he is. And she, I was exposed to textual criticism and all of this stuff. And I'm like, I kind of, it kind of created a, uh, um, I was kind of angry a little bit. Like, why was I not learning this stuff in, in, in church? And I went on this like hyper reform kick. And I was like, you know, the black church needs to get it together and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then I'm yeah. so glad that there was a gap in between the time I graduated from undergrad and the time I went to seminary, because in that gap, life happened and I mm. had to um, process the information that I got, the head knowledge, and it had mm. to really penetrate my heart. And the same people I was like, man, you should have taught me this. I needed them to pray me through some stuff. And so it wow. really was a humbling perspective. Um, experience because I realized, Hey, I got this information, but sometimes the people that have the information don't have the practice and the people that have the practice might not necessarily be able to articulate it, but they know it in their hearts and they walk it out in their lives. And that's the people that I need discipling me. Um, and so that's incredible. Um, I think that's what you're saying is so, so true because sometimes we get the information and we're like, Oh, okay. I need to teach you. And it's kind of like, no, you don't need to teach them because they already know it in their heart. You, you have it in your head, but it hasn't penetrated your heart. You can articulate, you know, that God is good, but what does that mean when life happens? And so, um, I thank you for your perspective. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's very, very encouraging. Also from, for me to hear, you know what I'm saying? I think, um, and I think you know, you probably know this, particularly among our generation, right? Mm-hmm. There, um, how can I put, we can kind of suffer with arrested development and get stuck in that stage that you were in and that I was in, like before life happens. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think it's, um, I think it's so important to, like you said, to kind of to kind of bring balance. Uh, balance. I know me pastorally. It's it's weird because um, even when it comes to something like preaching, right? People mm-hmm. will say, you know, you you gotta preach. So let's say, for example, this whole thing of expository preaching. Now mm-hmm. I'm I'm with it, right? I'm with it. I'm not I'm not 
like I'm not Calvinist in my theology, but I mean, I went to a Reformed seminary. I mean, I went to Princeton, like that's Calvin and Bart Central. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, Calvin and Bart seminary is probably what it should be called. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so I'm with the whole thing. I like, I'm, I consider myself an exegetical theologian, man. My theology is going to be based off my exegesis of scripture. That's what, you know, I appreciate about a lot of, um, a lot of people I was exposed to, things of that nature. But you take something like expository preaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like people will say that if you're not doing expository preaching this way, it's not expository preaching. And if it's not expository preaching, you're not, you're not preaching quote unquote sound doctrine. And I'm like the way some define expository preaching, Jesus wasn't expository preaching there. <laughs> I mean, cause he was like parable central. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look, he's like stories and parables, he's like he's writing in the sand, he's writing in the dirt, but then he takes scripture and kind of interweaves it into kind of the narratives that he tells in a way that it can be practically applied to people's life, mm-hmm. not just their head, but their heart. And I think that's kind of, like, that's the Jesus I see in scripture, and I think when you kind of articulated the marriage between the head and the heart, that's that's really what I thought about. Amen. And I think that's that's a good thing to note because I grew up my father's a Bible preacher, non denominational, leaning more so towards um a a little bit of Pentecostal charismatic um, not mm-hmm. oneness. I always have to say that because people I know, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, like yeah. clarify so yeah. you won't get the stones thrown at you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, so he, my dad always taught me the Bible. I watched my dad live the Bible. I watched my my mother and my father. You know, I watched them live it live it out in their marriage and as parents. So it's kind of like I know on Sundays my dad might do topical sermons, Bible study. We're walking through the whole Bible. So mm-hmm. I watch the the marriage between topical and expository in my life. So it's not for me, it's not as rigid because I'm like, I grew up knowing the Bible and I knew I grew up hearing both topical and um, expository. Um, yeah. So it's not for me, it's not hard to reconcile. Um, but for many, it is. It really is. And for me, it's confusing because really when you look at the Bible, it's a comprehensive book, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you really got to look at systematically. Because you could take something like, uh, and I, Lord, I don't want to go down this path, right? But you might take something like Paul in one context saying something to Timothy about women, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, let them be silent. If they got any questions, let them ask the husband at home. Right? But if you don't look at what Paul says about women and ministry comprehensively, then you just you just exegete Timothy and just preach what he said to Timothy and talk about what was going on in Ephesus without wrestling with, okay, well, in Corinthians he says, if they pray or prophesy, their head needs to be covered. So how can I prophesy if I have to be silent? So does that mean I'm prophesying at home? So I don't think that there are certain scriptural subjects that you can accurately understand biblically without looking at what the Bible has to say comprehensively and consistently about that subject. And I think very often when it comes to something like expository preaching, that that's not, uh, that type of latitude 
isn't often latitude that people kind of want to give. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, that's a bit, it's a bit dangerous, but... Um, yeah, I know we aren't talking about that, but that's kind of another one of my soapbox things. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Um, I, and it's too, I think the experiences, our experiences and the different uh, the different books we read and the different people we listen to help us get a more comprehensive view of what, um, of what you know, the gospel is and how ministry should be. Um, Because sometimes when we get connected to uh, when I went through that phase of reform theology, I would only read people that embrace that kinds of thinking. So Mm -hmm. it made my Mm -hmm. thinking very narrow. But then when I went to seminary, I, I started reading a little bit more widely. And so that Mm -hmm. was helpful to shape my development and kind of see, because you're in order to interact with people, you have to be, you have to be open. Now you don't have to, you know, throw away everything that you believe you hold on to your fundamentals, but you, you start to see everything's not as black and white as you would like it to be. And, um, so I I understand what you're saying. Incredible. (laughs) As far as apologetics goes in our, in our context, in the African-American context, what issues that do you see um, that are that we need to be addressing? Like, what are the immediate needs for our community? Got it. You know, I think some of it's going to vary um, in terms of apologetics. Mm-hmm. Some of it's, some of it's going to some social realities are consistent wherever you are, but in terms of some uh, some issues of apologetics is going to vary kind of based on your mission field, kind of the geographical region you're in. So I can, I can only speak kind of for mine. And so of course I'm in the Northeast, I'm in New Jersey. It's very kind of pluralistic, like when it comes to religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was very different than my experience in Mississippi. Um, and so for me, they're kind of, um, two that are just huge. And one is the necessity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's big in my context, really helping people understand uh, when I say the necessity of Jesus, not the necessity of his teachings or his principles, but the necessity of his person mm-hmm. and you believing in him and believing about him, what he said about himself. And I found in my context, at least culturally, is that, and this is one I, I think I did, um, I don't know, but it was one sermon in the Frequently Avoided Questions series that I did called I Need Jesus. And the feedback that I got was really interesting in terms of people espousing views about Jesus that are inconsistent with what Jesus said about himself. Mm -hmm. You know, so love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody's feeling that one but unaware of the context of, you know, the conversation where he says, yeah, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is something that I think a lot of people, in my context at least, were not aware of. They knew the statement, but not the context. Because, um, yeah, there's this, almost this, this assumption, right, Mm-hmm. That if you believe about Jesus uh, certain things, uh, 
then you're intellectually narrow, intellectually inferior, you're narrow in your thought processes, or you're kind of, you're judgmental, or you're painting this picture of God, of just one who just marginalizes people, who's exclusive, who's evil, and um, for me, that one's huge, because where I land is, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but I mentioned it in a message. Basically, C.S. Lewis says, um, if you say the kind of stuff about yourself that Jesus said about himself, uh, you're either right or you're crazy. There's mm-hmm. no no in-between. So kind of getting people to see that, that was huge. And this other one is probably equally as huge in my context, and that is the authority and the irrelevance and the relevance of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Scripture really is, you know, sola scriptura. It is, it is the Supreme Court that arbitrates all of our varying opinions, perspectives, ideologies, etc. So really being able to articulate that to people, I think, is are, is very important to me. And those are two of the biggest apologetic issues in, in my culture context. Yeah, and I think um, I'm seeing that all the time um, as far as like it when people are okay with Jesus as the love, you know, the, as you said, love your neighbor as yourself, love God. But when it comes to I am the way or, um, you know, the the authority of Scripture as being the authoritative, then that's mm-hmm. kind of when they kind of get uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like, well, that's kind of your truth. And this is my <laughs> yeah. truth. But I'm, I'm just saying if, if, if truth has to be objective so it can't be relative in a sense because if my truth contradicts your truth what what is the truth how can we determine yeah. truth and so um i think that's something even down south it it, it it's kind of spreading too down here so um i would i would imagine so Do, is is would you say you're supposed to be interviewing me i'm just interested in that <laughs> um would would you say that is that something you're finding uh, to be um, more prevalent among a certain generation. So, like, is this is this an issue with younger people, or is this something you're seeing across generational lines? I'm seeing it across generational lines, and I think wow. it's because of the the way it's promoted in culture. And so, it seems like the older people, instead of leading the younger generation are kind of being led by the younger generation. I could just see it on Facebook. Um, when I look at some of my friends' parents and I'm like, that's what you're posting? It's like it's like you're going backwards. And um it's it seems like this kind of just idea of, well, this is let me live my truth. Um I'm seeing po- people post this that are in their 50s and 60s. I'm talking to mm-hmm. people that are supposed to be solid um, and I'm I'm not I'm not even talking about um, unsaved mm-hmm. people. I'm talking about people in the church um, mm-hmm. saying things like this. And there seems to be kind of this shifting as culture is shifting. And I'm in I'm in Florida, ja- Jacksonville, Florida is the uh, a deep south. Um, so mm-hmm. 
it's 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 really interesting to see how culture is shifted and because we take our P's and Q's from celebrities and they're constantly saying my truth and mm-hmm. this is my truth mm-hmm. and it it's kind of it, it, people are subconsciously being infiltrated by this kinds of these kinds of thoughts and because they're renewing their mind with the TV instead of the word it's yeah it's it's kind of just showing itself. Yeah, and, and I think on my end, again, just kind of looking through a pastoral lens, it is one of the um, one of the, the things that I see, at least among a lot of my peers, is we are we're kind of a, at least observing that people are taking their cues from culture, mm-hmm. and we're observing kind of some people's at times very aggressive and intense reaction to this whole idea of there being a you know a truth that supersedes their own Mm -hmm. that sometimes in the name of trying to win them right Mm -hmm. and being evangelistic that true biblical christianity is not how can i put it it's not being i guess for lack of a better word lovingly fought for so, like, if if it is being fought for, it's it's not really consistent with what Peter talks about when he really talks about apologetics in First Peter three fifteen. He's like, listen, always be ready to give an answer to everybody who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, your reasoning for mm-hmm. hope. But like, he ends it with this. He says, but do it with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I think at times us as pastors, church leaders can see this kind of aggressive, condescending, disrespectful um, presentation of apologetics. Mm-hmm. And so we can have this knee-jerk reaction that's all the way to the other end and be so understanding, so so passive, um, so tactful that we aren't always truthful, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how you can convince people of something without being convincing you know mm-hmm. that like i think you so in some sense i feel like we've got to push back against this this my truth thing because what people really think is that my truth is going to lead me to ultimate joy mm-hmm. and for me i'm a christian hedonist i'm like no i want i want to present you with this truth because i love you mm-hmm. and i know that your truth is going to disappoint you Mm-hmm. That's that's what I know. It's not going to lead you to joy. Mm-hmm. It's not going to lead you to ultimate happiness. And um, and this biblical version of Christianity will. And I think that we got to be very very careful that we don't, in the name of trying to be, I don't know, even missional, that that we stay faithful. And we stay on the wall, and we are just as passionate as people in culture are about their truth, that we're just as passionate about the truth, and that we kind of push back with gentleness and respect to people's, I mean, really what it is, to people's idolatry. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a way to do that within um, the context of relationship. Too, I think sometimes when we have this yeah. information, we kind of want to throw 
Um, we would just want to throw the information at people. I remember Ricky Smiley say doing a drive by with green, little green Bible. <laughs> um, but, um, I think that's kind of our presentation when we get information. We don't, we don't share information in the context of relationship. So when I was, wow. I was in a, a banker before I went off to seminary and one of my, um, coworkers, um, we were talking and she knew me and, and she knew that my, my stance on things. And one day we were just talking about church and she, she looked at me and she said, so do you believe that if I don't accept Jesus, I'll go to hell? And, and I was like, taken back, I was like, oh man, I don't want to tell her. And I said, unfortunately I do. And she said, okay. And, but it didn't hinder our relationship. She still comes to me. She still, we're still friends. We can still go out to eat, but I was we have to sometimes, like you were saying, we, we kind of push back and we, I mean, run back and say, and we don't share truth because it's difficult, but people respect it when you're honest, but you can do it in the context of a relationship. I may disagree with your behavior, but I think of truth and love as not, not quoting mm. the truth, but being committed to your process. So you yeah. might not be with me. I might, we not, might not agree here, or you might be falling short here, but if I'm committed to your process, I think that shows the context of truth within relationship. Yeah, that's great. And so with that being said, I also think, um, for me, what has at least helped me well, serve, I feel like it served me well is, uh, and whether it's through conversations with people, whether it's through listening to other people teach, or whether it's through what I've read, like being armed with language that I can use that kind of helps me, at least in the best way I know how, kind of communicate, mm-hmm. even in the context of relationship, kind of communicate these hard truths. Like, you know, for example, if somebody says, okay, this this whole piece about Jesus and him claiming to be the exclusive way to God, and okay, well, you know, what do you believe about Jesus and me and Ellen? So, well, you know, I love you, but I have to say I believe about Jesus what Jesus believed about himself. Mm-hmm. And and so for me, it took me kind of just being exposed to be equipped with language like that that kind of made me comfortable and gave me the courage to actually, you know, speak truth to people that you love. I think that's that's important. Amen. Um why for some people I know I grew up in a non-denominational kind of Pentecostal context and thankfully my 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 dad didn't believe that intellect was the enemy of faith um I'm thankful that he didn't ascribe to seminary being cemetery um but I knew that I know that his spiritual father did um and because he saw kind of he saw some some dangers in that he kind of went the other way um, he's he's very balanced in that idea, and I'm thankful for that because that helps n- me navigate through some stuff. But for those who still are Pentecostal, charismatic brothers and sisters, some who s- still do ascribe to um, intellect being the enemy of faith, how can we help change that in the African American community? Yeah, um, I don't know. I. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I I think um, uh, 
can I put it? I, you know, I, I don't, how can I put it? I think sometimes the way we have historically managed knowledge has contributed to people being adverse to, I guess, intellect in that regard. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think people just grew up. I don't think people, this idea that seminary is cemetery, I don't think it just emerged out of thin air. Mm -hmm. So I'm not blaming seminarians or seminarians, Mm -hmm. but I am saying I think there has to be a degree of ownership or at least an openness to evaluate. Have have we in any way contributed to kind of this perspective and this perception? And, um, you know, as I just kind of talk through it, I guess I can take a stab at it and throw one thing out, and that is... um, I don't know if we'll be able to convince people through conversation. Mm-hmm. I think you said it earlier. I think us actually being commit or people being committed to living out their truth mm-hmm. and allowing truth to uh, cause a reformation, not just in their head, right, but in their heart. Mm-hmm. And that heart reformation uh, being a catalyst that causes a revolution in terms of the how we live, our, in terms of the way we live our life, and in terms of how we actually treat people, mm-hmm. and I think that fruit, that type of fruit, is probably going to be one of the most effective ways in kind of changing people's perception along those lines. You know, because I mean, honestly, man, it took a while for me to find kind of examples of people who are like Apollos or like Paul, just incredibly committed to understanding and embracing truth intellectually. But like this whole idea of truth and fire, but that truth being wood Mm -hmm. that continually ignites the fire and the passion for God that's in my heart. So it's only until I stumbled upon guys like Dallas Willard Mm -hmm. that I saw modern day examples of that marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is not a critique at all. This is just an observation. Even in my experience growing up in church, I saw passion in pulpits mm-hmm. when it was preaching. But I didn't always see that. So I saw scholar, heard scholarship and I saw a degree of passion in preaching. But I didn't experience that infectious, contagious passion for God when I was with those individuals outside of it. Mm-hmm. So I think just kind of examples of what, what of that marriage. That's kind of my two cents. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Daniels, for your time. Um, what? what would you want to leave with our listeners? What resources uh, did you use during your uh, frequently avoided questions series? And what would be your last word and how can people get in contact with you on social media or through your church website? Well, I'll answer backwards. Um, so for me, social media, everything is Darius Daniels and it's, it's easy because my name is spelled with an H it's D H A R. I-U-S, and so that's that's everything. That's Periscope, that's Instagram, that's Facebook, that's Twitter. So obviously that's 
that's kind of that's the best way to kind of stay connected mm-hmm. uh, with me. Um, in terms of what I would leave the listeners with, I, I guess it would be I'll piggyback on kind of our last discussion, and, and that is, I mean, the last question that is the importance of just pursuing truth and fire. Mm-hmm. That you know that truth would not be a weapon that you use to beat up others, but that truth for you would be wood that you use to kind of um, ignite a fire and a passion for God and for God's purposes in your own heart. Um, because what, like when the rubber meets the road, people will always remember the impact you have on people um, for, for most people, right? Especially those that you actually come in contact with. It's, it's going to come from who you are and how you love them. Mm-hmm. way more than what you know. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't I don't even remember what I preached this time last year, and I preached it. <laughs> so I know, my, I know all my members don't. But what will impact them more is the example that I set for them mm-hmm. and the way that I love them. So I would encourage people to, uh, to kind of pursue that, and I would, I would leave them with that. In terms of resources, I mean, obviously, the Bible was kind of, um, was extremely important for me in preparing for this. And when I say the Bible, preparing for this series, when I say the Bible, like really objectively looking at scriptures, like looking at them realistically. Like mm-hmm. next year, I'm actually away planning my sermon calendar as uh, this week. And there's some teaching I'm doing next year in 2016. My summer series, nine weeks just on biblical characters. And what I did for this series is, like, I just really kind of took off the the, the the historic, traditional, spiritual lens and just kind of read the stories of trouble and tragedy in the Bible, like reading Job. And, like, when you read it, not trying to spiritualize it, you'll see that he got new kids, he got different kids at the end of that story, but he didn't get his old kids back. Mm-hmm. And I got two kids. And if I lose both of them and I get two more, or I get four, that doesn't replace the kids that I lost. Mm-hmm. And so there's Job had to wrestle with real grief and, and and things of that nature. And so my point is just kind of objectively reading the Bible, that helped me. And, uh, of course, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, The Case for the Faith, were probably the, the two most dominant resources and a little bit of Tim Keller's The Reason for God. Awesome. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I know I've, I've enjoyed it. Um, and I thank you so much, Dr. Daniels, for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. I enjoyed it also. Glad to be a part. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com 
um, backslash Jude 3 Project. And remember, you can donate on our site. So if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you, help support us financially um, by going on our website at Jude3Project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating. Consider donating to us. Thank you so much. Remember, at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.